the discussion into verses 3, 4, and 5. He expands on it a little bit in a way that is, I think, really powerful. These verses are extremely important for me, I think, for us to understand. Um, in a lot of ways, I think that if we could understand these next three verses, it might be the secret for many of us to finding our own emotional and spiritual health. I think an awful lot of what's wrong with us is because we don't understand, haven't got to the point where Paul got to in what he's describing here in these verses. And it, it's so important that I'm, you know, in teaching on it, I feel like, oh, I, I so much want people to understand what God is saying here. It's a, it's, a, it's a very important lesson. And so before we read it, let's just look to the Lord in prayer and ask him to help us. God, we so often don't understand basic things that will make all the difference for us if we could understand them. And Lord, these things that Paul is discussing in these verses are so critical to our health and development and well-being. And Lord, I just pray today that although we're all the same in a lot of ways, yet we're each individuals and need to hear what you have to say to us in special and personal ways. And Lord, would you just please do that for us today? We thank you for your ability to go beyond our ability in order to speak and address our spirits and who we are. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. 1 Corinthians 4, beginning with verse 3, Paul says, But with me it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by a human court or assembly. In fact, I don't even judge myself. For I know of nothing against myself, yet I am not justified by this. But he who judges me is the Lord. Therefore, judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the hearts. Then each one's praise will come from God. One of the verses that is quoted a lot nowadays, is found over there in Matthew chapter 7 in the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus said, judge not that you be not judged. And a lot of times people use that verse today to tell people to leave me alone. Don't question what I am doing. Don't make me feel bad about what I'm doing. And so often we kind of toss that out there and and don't really deal with the fact that this is something very important to the Lord. The idea of not condemning others. The word here for judge is a word, the Greek word is anakrino. It's two words put together. The one, kreno, means to discern or to judge or to evaluate, really. And the ana prefix put on the beginning of it means to keep doing it over and over again. And we're exhorted throughout scriptures really not to do that. Our job isn't to judge. But here Paul personalizes it in the light and context of who he is as a servant of Christ and deals with this in a way that it's important, vitally important that we understand. You know, um, over in Romans it talks about the fact that 
you know, you're not to judge another man's servant. And in other words, don't criticize somebody else's employee. It's good rule in life, but it's also what he's talking about here. Paul is saying, I am a servant of Christ, an under rower of Christ. I just show up to work, and I do what I'm supposed to do. And I'm a steward of the mysteries of God. There are certain things that God has placed in my hands to deal with. But he makes it clear judging isn't one of them. But he starts out here in verse 3 by saying, when people judge me, he goes, I take it with a grain of salt in a way. Look at that. With me, it is a very small thing. The very indicates that the word here is a word that's diminutive. That means this is about as small as you can get. It's the smallest of things to me that I should be judged by you or by a human court, not referring to the legal system, but just referring to what people think. He says, it's not a big deal to me. And again, in the context of saying, I work for Christ. I report to him for duty. I am following him. And I don't care too much what you have to say in terms of your evaluation of me. Now, you know, it sounds almost like, hey, I don't care about you, almost insulting. But really what Paul understands here is something that if we don't get to understand it, then we will end up following the wrong master. We will end up worrying about what people think at the expense of being concerned about what God thinks. The truth is people will judge you. We can sit and talk about, oh, judge not that you be not judged. But the truth is they are judging you, and you know they are judging you. You are surrounded by people who are evaluating your performance at all times. The question isn't how to get people to stop judging you. The question is how can I get to the point where what they are judging me about doesn't mean a lot of devastation for me, doesn't wipe me out. He, Paul seemed to have a healthy sense of the fact that, sorry, people, I care about you, I love you, and I, and I want to minister to you and help you, but I'll tell you what, what you think about me ultimately is not a big deal to me. Now, we can say something like that easily. It's easy for me to say, I don't care what you think, but the truth is, and I think we all know it, we do care what people think. We are affected by how they judge us. But Paul was moving in the direction of and attempting to say, I'm not going to let what you say about me or what you think of me control my life. Paul had been criticized a lot. The books of First and Second Corinthians were written to a great degree to address a lot of the heat that Paul was taking, judgments that people were making about him. He was human, and it hurt him, as it hurts us, when people don't approve of who we are and what we do. And the people who pretend that it doesn't bother them, what other people think about them, usually they're the ones who are hardening themselves so much so that they act like it doesn't affect them, but in reality, it affects them greatly. Think for a minute about who, how you figured out who you are. 
What do you know about you? Where does your, and I'm not going to get Freudian about all of this, but there is an element of truth to the fact that I figure out who I am based on what I think other people think of who I am. And as a result, ever since we're little kids, we become defined by other people's evaluation of us. And this is often not a good thing. We can become so limited and so held back. We can become so crippled and, and, and completely just devastated by the fact that other people think I'm this way because we, we believe what other people think about us. And so often the judgments that they make about us were completely unfair and untrue. Maybe even ill-intentioned or maybe even tossed out there in a way that it didn't seem like that big of a deal to them, but it was a big deal to us. I, I suggest that if you look back at your life, you would see there are a whole lot of things that have, have drastically affected who you think you are that have come about because of what other people have said in judging you. And whether we like it or not, we so often become defined by criticism. And as a result, we sometimes become completely addicted to pleasing people. To, oh, I've got to do whatever it is that's going to make people happy. Well, if you're going to live your life to please people, I have news for you. It's not going to work. It's, it will be unsuccessful because sooner or later, you're going to do something that doesn't please people and then feel like you've failed. You know, I remember a time, and it's a stupid little thing. It shouldn't be a big deal to me, but when I was in eighth grade, we had a writing assignment. Now, up until that point in my life, I never really did my best at schoolwork because I learned that I could do good enough without trying very hard. So as long as I would get an A, I thought, no complaints, that's fine. And so I may have been the kind of kid that you hated when you were a kid, but I could put in a 50% effort and, and get really good grades. But for some reason in eighth grade, I decided when we had this essay, this writing assignment, I was going to do my best work. It might have had something to do with the fact that my teacher, Miss Jenkins, was, I mean, for a junior high teacher, she was kind of cute. And, and, I, and I thought, you know, I'm going to really impress this lady. I'm going to show her what good work really is. Oh, she gives me A pluses on stuff I slop together. This one's going to blow her mind. And so for the first time in my life up to that point, I worked on this thing. And we could write on anything we wanted, and I wrote it, and I rewrote it, and I fixed my, you know, word structure, and I thought of better words to use than other words, and I was so proud of this paper when I turned it in. And in my mind, I was thinking, this is going to be great. My teacher is just going to be so, maybe I'll even move her to tears when she reads this thing. <laughs> and it'll be cool because I'll probably you know, get to read it in front of the class, and she'll point it out as an example of great work, and I just knew that was going to be the case. So, Miss Jenkins passed the papers out, and mine didn't come back, and I thought, oh, this is awesome. 
and I'm going to read it in front of the class to Miss Jenkins. And it's just going to be this one of those moving experiences. And, and I'll put all, all kinds of drama into it, and it's going to be great. But she didn't have me read it in front of the class. And, and so finally I raised my hand and said, um, I didn't get my paperback. She said, yeah, I know. I, I'd like to see you after class. And I'm like, oh, she wants me to read it to her privately. You know, this is something. She couldn't even, she's embarrassed to have me read it in front of the class. It's so good. So after class, I waited until all the little kids left. And it was just me and Miss Jenkins. And went up to her desk, and there was that paper with an F on the top. I'm like, are you nuts? What? I didn't say that, but I... It was like, I can't believe, F. And she said, David, do you think I'm stupid? And I go, no. She said, your paper was great. But she said, you're an eighth grader. You didn't write that. And I go, yeah, I did. I, 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 and I wanted to go get the rough drafts of it and everything, but I was, just, I was just stunned. And she said, I can't believe you'd cheat in my class. And, you, and she just read me the riot act for for cheating on a paper. And, you know, I could have said, what do I care about what some old hag, you know, eighth grade teacher? <laughs> I, I could have just blown it off, but instead what it did, honestly, I, I have to admit for the rest of my educational career, probably all the way through graduate school, I don't think I ever put that kind of an effort on a paper again. And it wasn't, I wasn't thinking, you know, well, Miss Jenkins, you know, I didn't make a shrine to her at home and, you know, carve up her face or anything. But I, it was just like, there's something happened there that said, if you do your best, it's not appreciated. So why don't you just go ahead and do enough? Why don't you just get by? Just do what you can. And I, and I think, in how many ways did that affect my capacity and my motivation to really put 100% effort into what I would do. It affected me. Now, I'm okay. I think I'm over it, you know. <laughs> but how many other things happen to us that affect us that way? It caused me, when I worked at a school, to go bend over backwards to make sure I gave kids the benefit of the doubt. And sometimes it meant I let kids get away with stuff. Because I wouldn't discipline someone for something unless they admitted they did it. And I would take their word for it if that was what it was. Now, there were some kids who were smart enough that, to learn that, hey, if you just keep lying, you'll be off the hook. I remember one time there was a kid in our junior high school there at Calvary, who John O'Neill, who was brought to the office for cheating. And everyone knew he cheated. The teacher knew he cheated. The other teachers knew he cheated. The vice principal knew he cheated. The coordinator of junior high knew he cheated. And here I am with John and his parents and the teachers and everybody, and it's like, we're going to really nail this kid. And John was swearing he didn't cheat. And I looked at him, and I just thought, he would not break. And, and John wasn't the type of kid who would do that. And so I just said, you know what? And teachers were upset with me about it. But I said, you know what, John? I'm just going to believe you. You say you didn't cheat? They say you did? I'll believe you. You're, you're off the hook. It's fine. And they wanted him suspended from school until he'd come back and admit it and everything. But I just felt, I thought back to the time when I was judged, and I just thought, I'm not going to even take a chance at doing that. 
Our legal system is designed with the theory that it's better for a thousand guilty people to go free than for one innocent person to be punished un- unjustly. And so years later, John O'Neill, I, you know, I thought, yeah, one of these days he'll probably tell me, you know, hey, you know, you're right, I cheated. But instead, and it blew my mind, he, one time we were somewhere and talking, and he goes, you know, Dave, I never talked to you about that thing before, but he said, you don't know how much it meant to me that you believed me. And I'm like, I don't even remember if I did believe you, John. <laughs> you know, I'd, and he goes, no, but he said, I, I didn't cheat. And he said, everybody there, I could even see my parents, and I thought they probably thought I was guilty. And he goes, you believe me. And it was like, you know, I'm glad if I believed him or if I didn't, it was so long ago, I don't know. But I'm glad he had that feeling of there's somebody that thinks you're worth believing. Well, how many of us have been defined by other people's evaluation of us in a way that completely holds us back and causes us to believe this is who I am? How many people never went and got an education because somebody told them when they were in third grade that, you know, well, you're not the sharpest pencil in the drawer, So I was like, okay, I guess I'm going to have to work for a living. How many people who lived with that evaluation of somebody saying, there's something wrong with you, there's something in you that isn't normal, and you just go, you're too dumb to, you know, I just, I guess so, I guess that's just me, and we're held back from all that God has for us, and God's saying, I want you to be a steward of the mysteries of God. I have something really special to do in your life, but we're listening to those voices that tell us, nah, it's not. See, the devil is a liar, but he's good at it. And the devil is whispering to us constantly, you're a loser. You're not, you don't add up enough. You know, it's... We listen to that so much, we start to believe it. And we are held back because of whatever perception that other people define for us. And so Paul didn't say, you know what, people, when they say stuff about me, it doesn't hurt me at all. He didn't say that. But he said, when you judge me, when anybody else judges me, it's a small thing to me. I deliberately look at it and say, I need to minimize that. It doesn't mean you don't hear it. It doesn't mean sometimes you might not learn something from it. But ultimately, you need to take it with a grain of salt because those people who are judging you, now, it might be true. You might be dumb and ugly and everything that they're saying, but so are they. And so as a result, it's like a pooling of ignorance, and therefore, I'm going to let you define who I am you don't even know who you are. And, and so Paul says, as much as I can, I want to, in my own mind, to say, you know what? You have your opinions. I'm not going to let that be a big deal to me. I'm just not going to be held back and limited by your judgment of me, by your evaluation of me. So I get that paper and it has an F on it, the attitude should be, that's your opinion. You're not much of a critic if that's what you think. And there are so many people who, because they can't do that, they just end up being completely enslaved to other people. And I think we all are to a degree. 
I think that every one of us knows what it's like to be a chronic people pleaser, to be just always wanting to keep everyone happy with us. And ultimately what that does is it destroys us. It ultimately robs us of, of our being able to continue to row because sooner or later when people's criticism gets to you enough, you'll just go, that's it. I can't do it anymore. You win, I quit. And that's what we do in all kinds of areas of our lives. We are held back. We are, are limited by what other people are saying about us. And we've got to get over that. And Paul said, I just don't make that big of a deal out of what you think of me. Now, it's easy for, as a pastor, you know, it's, it's easy to become sensitive to, you know, what people think. And, and it's funny because if a whole lot of people tell me, hey, that was a great study, and then one person says that was really wrong, you know, of course that's the one I remember. And, and I'm overly critical of myself, and Paul talks about that next. But as a result, if somebody comes up to me after church and they say, like today, they go, Dave, last week's study was absolutely life-changing for me. It was so great. And I, and I think, last week's study? What about this week's study? <laughs> What about other week's study? I thought the one week before last was decent. Only last week's study? <laughs> See, this is something that we do in families too. You know, there's evaluation going on. You know if you're married. The first time that your, that your partner, that your spouse took issue with something that you were doing, and they were just trying to help. You know, you, you ask you know, so how was breakfast this morning? Well, no one really wants to know how. They, they aren't asking for a critique of their breakfast. They're asking for a compliment. So if you say, well, eggs were a little salty. Personally, I like sausage a little more well done. And next time, if you put the toast in a little later, it would be hot along with the rest of the food. <laughs> Boom, the plate of food gets thrown across the room or in your face, and it's like, what happened? Who's making a big deal about this? I just, you ask and I told you. Because we're all so sensitive about being criticized. And so Paul said, I work for him. The truth is, and you can say this to your spouse, or your teacher, or your boss, or anyone else, the truth is you go, I don't work for you. I work for Jesus Christ. I work for him. And I'm going to try to please him. And I'm going to be faithful. That's what's required of a steward. And, and I'm going to keep rowing the boat. I'm not going to quit. But, you know, you give me your input, thanks. I'll file it away. But I really don't need people in my life who have a, a lap full of scorecards on their lap ready to hold it up every time I do something to tell me if it's good enough or not. Just don't need that. That doesn't help. I don't want your criticism, basically, Paul says. And if you give it, believe me, it's going to mean this much, just a little tiny bit. If you can't deal with that, you can't deal with it. But he goes on and says, I'm not going to be judged by you or anybody else. And he said, in fact, I don't even judge myself. 
for I know of nothing against myself, yet I'm not justified by this. He who judges me is the Lord. You start out by being judged by others, and that limits and defines you. And then eventually, that develops to where it's like, I am going to judge myself. I'll be harder on myself than other people are. And the truth is, most of the time, isn't that the way we are? The reason why when people criticize me it hurts is because they're saying things that I already was thinking myself. They're telling me things that deep down inside, I've been telling myself that for years, that I'm just not good enough, that one of these days people are going to figure out who I really am, that somehow my limitations will just become obvious to everyone. Because the devil's been lying to me my whole life. And when you criticize me, all you're doing is saying those same things that he has been saying all along. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That is such a powerful scripture for us to have just completely engraved on our hearts. Who is the accuser of the brethren? It's Satan himself. And at the same time, we can play along with him and go, oh, you want to say bad things about me? Wait till you hear what bad things I say about myself. And through being self-critical, between that and other people criticizing us, it's like, I'm devastated. I don't even feel like getting up in the morning. I don't feel like doing anything because everything I do, it doesn't measure up to what other people think it ought to be. And for me, even myself, I can't even do it to my own satisfaction. And I might as well just quit. I might as well just give up. And Paul said, that's how you forfeit your stewardship. That's how you blow it as a servant. You quit showing up. You stop being faithful. You quit rowing the boat because you've allowed criticism You've allowed that kind of analysis to completely paralyze you. There's nothing harder to work out of a person than self-analysis. There's an expression, they talk about the paralysis of analysis. When you're just trying too hard. As a coach, the hardest thing to work into an athlete is to get them to stop coaching themselves to stop thinking so much. And of course, we try to coach athletes, but at the same time, what we're doing is we're telling them, okay, when you're shooting a basketball, make sure your feet are in the right position, watch your weight distribution, see how you're angled to the basket, relax your arms, relax your wrist, guide the ball, follow through, let your... And we're saying all this stuff, hey, you can't do that and play basketball. You either shoot the ball or you analyze how you're shooting the ball. And there's a place for some healthy criticism, but the best advice most of us could get is quit trying to analyze yourself. Quit trying to figure yourself out. Quit trying to discover yourself and find yourself and fix yourself and coach yourself. Just shut up and row. Just get down. You just work here, okay? Just keep doing what you know to do. Be faithful. Don't worry so much about whether you're doing a good job. Don't be looking to other people. How's this? Is this okay? Well, how do I look now? What about this? Does this make me look fat or what? No. 
you know what? No, it doesn't make you look fat. You're just fat. But <laughs> it's like, what worrying about it? It doesn't matter so much what other people think. And it doesn't matter what you think about yourself. You work for someone. Do what God tells you to do. Be faithful to him, and he'll work out all the mysteries of it all. You know, I think one of the most horrible things that we've developed within the church of Jesus Christ among Christians is this phoniness that comes of trying to act like we're better than we really are. See, and, I, and it's something really easy to fall into as a pastor because I know people expect certain kinds of behavior from a pastor. And so it's like, okay, here I am. I'm up here, and it's as if I'm saying, hey, look at me and do things the way I do them. And then you see me turn left illegally out here, or you see, see me driving on the freeway at, you know, speeds in excess of what the posted limit is, and, and you're just like, oh, and I feel like, oh, man, I'm a pastor. I can't do that. I'm worried about what people think of me. And so what happens is we develop this phony existence whereby I don't let anybody see me do anything that they might think is wrong. Now, the truth is, when I turn left out here, I don't care what the sign says. I, if there's no cars coming either way, now I know if I get spotted doing that, I might get a ticket. And most of the time I do, I go out this driveway and I go and make the U-turn because it just seems to be better. But the truth is, if I turn left out here, I'm not going to feel really guilty about it. I'm not going to, you know, beat myself up over it. And I'm not going to think, oh, man, I'm a pastor. I shouldn't do it. I'm just a person. I'm just a rower. I'm just a servant. I'm just like you. You know, so, like, if I were to say that I have tickets to go see Bob Dylan in concert on July 27th at the amphitheater, and it's like, and I'm going, oh, but he's going to be singing some secular songs, and I don't want to stumble anybody, and I don't want, you know, and so then I just go, okay, never mind. Maybe I don't have tickets to see Bob Dylan. (laughs) Or I can just go, yeah, I'm going to, I'm not going to miss church to do it or anything, but... You know, and if he sings a bad song, I won't sing along with that bad song. But now I, I'm going to go do this. And, and you go, oh, no. Here we go, honey. We got to go find another church again because <laughs> another pastor that just doesn't add up to our concept of what we think is acceptable behavior for someone. And so what happens? People learn, hey, if you're going to go to a secular concert, just shut up about it at church because people are going to criticize you for it. If you're going to turn left illegally, wait till everyone's gone and they won't see you doing it. If you're going to drive fast, don't put Christian bumper stickers on your car because, you know, they're going to, you know, somebody sees a harvest sticker flying by at 80. And, And so what happens is we create this phony world whereby it is not safe to be you any longer. Because all around you are people with their numbers poised, ready to go, eh, you got a one. You didn't measure up. You're not as good as I think you ought to be. And so we create a world whereby there's no grace. There's no, hey, I am what I am, as Popeye said, and that's all that I am. (laughs) But see, everything about the gospel of Jesus Christ says 
Listen, you are what you are, and that's all that you are. You're a rower. It's okay. You got a boss. He'll cover for you. He'll take care of you. He died for your sins. He forgives you. When you blow it, you don't have to be analyzing yourself all the time. You don't have to be letting other people analyze you. And then he goes on and says, therefore, verse 5, judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and revealed the counsels of the heart, then each one's praise will come from God. So he says, first of all, don't let other people's judgment of you be a big deal to you. Decide that I'm not going to let other people define who I am. Or I'm also not going to let other people turn me into a phony so that they will accept who I am. But then he says, secondly, and stop doing it to yourself. For some of you, the most legalistic, destructive person in your life is you. Stop doing that to yourself. Don't judge yourself. Paul goes, I don't judge myself. I don't know. I'm not covering up obvious things. I, you know, I'm, I'm dealing with who I am. But he goes, I don't judge myself, and I don't let you judge me either. And then he says, and the truth is, God's the one who's going to judge So don't judge each other. Don't live this kind of lifestyle. And then he goes on to to talk about what we sometimes call the Bema Seat Judgment of Christ. He talked about it earlier in chapter 3. Later in the book, he alludes to it again. But that's the time when Christians report an answer for what they did with their life. And it's not a time of judgment in terms of now you're going to get toasted. It's a reward stand. It's the same word that's, that was used in the Olympics for standing up there and getting your medal. And he's reminding them of the fact that you work for the Lord. You're his servant. You're a steward of what he gives you, and often that's mysterious. But he said, you'll get rewarded someday, and he's the one that you'll answer to. Don't judge before it's time. The time is at that reward seat. And at that time, God is going to judge you and reward you for what you did that was right. Now, for so many of us, we go, I don't think I've ever done anything right. In fact, as you read here where he says, he's going to bring to light the hidden things of darkness, and we go, oh, man, the things nobody knows about? You mean the things inside our head that we thought that we never even did? Yeah. And he's going to reveal the counsels of the hearts. That word there for counsels, counsels isn't really the best translation for it. It's a word that refers to your intentions or like what were you thinking kind of a deal, your motivation behind what you did. And so I believe that when we're rewarded, God's going to look at everything that we've done and anything that we did selfishly, anything that we did that was sinful, anything that we did that was just tossed out there and wasted, he just burns it up and wipes it out. It's, it's over. It's wiped out. It's forgiven and we're fine. But then anything that's left that we did with a heart, with a good motivation, we were thinking of something good, we were trying to do the right thing, he says, I'll reward you for that. Now, the problem is our motives are almost always mixed. Almost everything I do that is for a good motive, there's also other elements that, you know, come into play, honestly. And, and I think if we evaluate too much, if we scrutinize too much our actions, we will 
always be so critical of ourselves that we'll think, I'm never going to get a reward. One of the things I do on Sunday morning, because second service is a pretty crowded service, and we're limited in terms of our parking, I park across the street at the shopping center. And David J., our head usher, always does, and some other people do sometimes also. And it's nice. I, you know, it just takes a few minutes to walk over here and feels good. And now somebody who otherwise would have been turned away gets a place to park. Now, aren't I great for doing that? See, and so a part of me, though, I really just do it because, hey, it's consideration. I, I like the idea of somebody new, maybe they don't know the Lord and they're able to park. So there you go. I just lost my reward. But I also, I also kind of think, that's a good example. And I'm like, a good example of what? Well, these other people who are so selfish, <laughs> maybe they'll start going. Maybe some of the other people on staff even will park over there if they know that I do. And especially if they know right now, I mean, I've got this thing in my neck that's bothering me, and it's really kind of hard, and, I, and all of a sudden, something that seemed like an easy thing to do, now it also becomes a way of, I'll show them. And, you know, maybe people will see me walking, and they'll take a hint and do it themselves, or at least they'll think, I'm so glad that we have a pastor who would do something like this. <laughs> it's so great. After the workday yesterday, and we had some guys who stayed really long, and the workday was supposed to be till one. We had guys who worked till like six. And, you know, the bummer was after everyone else was gone, there was like some of these chairs were stacked up. There was wood and sawdust and tools everywhere. And I'm like exhausted. And I'm going, I can't, we can't have church like this. So all alone in the sanctuary by myself. I'm setting up the chairs, and I'm vacuuming with the shop vac. I'm on my hands and knees picking nails out of the carpet, and I'm doing all this stuff and cleaning up this mess and dragging things to the trash. And I'm thinking, boy, it's a bummer. You know, where are people when you're doing something like this? Nobody's going to see me doing it. And I thought, oh, I'll just tell people about it tomorrow in church. No, I... <laughs> I didn't even tell first service about it because I, I wanted some reward, but I thought, I'll tell the biggest service. <laughs> no, that wasn't going through my mind. You know what honestly went through my mind after that? After like, man, where is everyone? Then I thought, this is so cool that I can serve God in this way. I'm looking at this building and I'm, I'm getting teary-eyed just going, God has blessed us so much. And I have a key to this place, and, and I get to see God work in this building. And I was like, so how do you evaluate what I did? On the one hand, I had a bad attitude about all the people who didn't stick around to help. And I'm thinking, man, we had a couple guys who hung in there and did a lot. So I'm feeling really good about certain people, like Mark <laughs> and Bob Millspaw. And then I'm thinking of other people, and, and I'm just going... I didn't see them after about one or two. And, I, and, so, and then I'm going, I wish they could see me now. This would be a perfect promotional video for our website. Here's Pastor Dave on his knees with a bad neck, picking up nails out of the... And, and then I'm just go, also going, God, you're so good. We're so blessed to have this opportunity. You've showered us. So, so how do you end up telling the story? And how does this show up on the Bema seat? When God's going to reward me, how's it going to work? Because he would look and have to say, okay, Dave, you picked up some 
you know, sawdust with your fingernails. You have splinters in your hands. Nice job. Then you went and told about it, and you were kind of thinking about, you know, what a great guy you are for doing it and how bad everyone else is for letting you and, all, and, and how, you know, man, you're, you're actually going to miss the first fight on the UFC because of it, and thank God for TiVo. And uh, so, <laughs> so how do you judge that? The great thing is I love the way God judges, and I will gladly put myself in His hands for reward time. Because when I look in the New Testament at how he talks about people in the Old Testament, he's like a spin doctor. You know, Lot, who selfishly chose Sodom instead of the other way, the New Testament says he was a righteous man. When I read Hebrews chapter 11, as it tells the stories of the hero of the faith, the spin is unbelievable. A guy like Abraham is called you know, a great man of faith. When I look in the Old Testament, the guy two different times gave his wife over to some foreign ruler and said, oh, she's just my sister, have at her. And I'm like, what? And God says he's a man of faith? God congratulates Moses' parents for sticking their baby in a basket and floating them in the water? I'm like, what? God says Samson was a man of whom the world was not worthy. Samson, this guy who had all this potential, never did anything. Finally, the one time when he delivered Israel and destroyed Philistines, it was ultimately because as he was blinded and hung onto the beams of the building, and he said, God, avenge now my eyes. He just wanted to get back at people for poking his eyes out. And the New Testament says, he's a hero. The world wasn't worthy of him. How do you make sense of that? Well, I don't know, but I want to get in line for that judgment. And it's called grace. It's called God's ability to look at what we do, and he says, yeah, part of your motivation was messed up. And part of what you were thinking and some of what you were saying, it wasn't there. And you failed more than you succeeded. But then he goes with that great wave of forgiveness He goes, we're going to forget all about all of your bad motives. And somewhere in there, you actually, there was a part of you that actually wanted to do the right thing. And he said, that's all that's left. We're going to reward you for that. And God will reward all of us in ways that, well, no one else would ever think it was fair. If we're at the Bema Seat Judgment and looking at it, and we're seeing God rewarding us for stuff, all of our friends could be sitting there going, what? You didn't do, I was the one that did that. How did that, what are you talking about? Yeah, you didn't tell them about what you did this time and what you said that time. No, that's right. Because all that stuff is gone, and all that's left is that gracious perspective of a God who can look at you and love you despite what a mess you are. And as a result, Paul says, don't judge other people. This isn't the time to do that. Jesus told a parable over in Matthew chapter 13 about tares and wheat. And he goes, there's this wheat field, and it was all planted and ready to go. And then the enemy came and scattered weed seed all through the crops. And when weeds started to grow up, the servants are like, what do we do? Do we pull up all the weeds? And the master said, no, the problem is weeds and wheat look an awful lot alike. And if you keep pulling out all the weeds, you're also going to pull out some of the wheat. And so he goes, just let it grow. And when the harvest comes, it'll be obvious what's wheat and what's tares, and you can sort it out then. 
Let the judge of the harvest sort it out. And then Jesus interpreted the parable and said, the devil is the one who sows those weeds. And he said, at the final judgment, let God sort it out. You don't sort it out now. This isn't the time. This isn't the place. You're not the person. In other words, as Paul said here, stop judging. Judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the motivations of the heart, and then each one's praise will come from God. Every one of God's children will be rewarded because God can see us in a way that's so much kinder than we can see ourselves or that others can see us. The truth is you look at me the way I am and you could, you'll have plenty of reasons to go, you're a mess. And believe me, when I look at myself the way I am, I think that thought all the time. But healthy relationship to God comes when we say, you know what, what you think of me, it's not that big a deal to me. I'm trying to not make it be a big deal. It is, it hurts, but I'm minimizing that, and I'm going to quit picking on myself. I'm going to quit scrutinizing myself, and in the process, I think I'm going to quit picking on you too. I'm going to quit telling you what's wrong with you. What I want to do is I have a job. My job is to row, and I want to shut up and row. I just want to do what I'm supposed to do. It's required that I'm faithful, and I want to be faithful in what God gave to me, and that's it. And when I obey that, when I do what Paul's saying here, oh, there's such a freedom. Life is so awesome because I can go, you know what? I blew it 95% of the day today, but there was that thought that I had of, God, I love you and you're good. And that might have been a 20-second thought in a 24-hour day that the whole rest of the day was spent doing stupid things, thinking unproductive thoughts, and at the judgment, God's going to say, that was a good day. I remember that thought. I remember that moment when you gave me your attention. We live in a world that wants to scrutinize everything we do, and we have allowed this world to turn the church into a place where everything is scrutinized, where we are evaluated based on whether or not we measure up. When we allow that to happen, we beat each other up, we beat ourselves up, and we miss the glory of what it is to be a servant of Christ, to be a steward of the mysteries of God, Listen, you work for him. Answer to him. When the time is right, you will love the way he evaluates you. In the meantime, stop judging. You're going to get it all wrong. It's not going to matter ultimately. And then your joy will be gone, and, and finally, you'll stop rowing. You'll lose heart. You'll quit doing what you're called to do. You'll quit showing up. 